Good morning, Lucy Hawkey here, L.W. Hawksby, if you're interested in my writing. Um, that's my author name, so if you want to uh, look L.W. Hawksby up on uh, Amazon, you'll find some of my books are out at the moment. Right, so today, let's talk about adult sexual abuse. I know it's not even 10 o'clock yet, and I, as you can tell by my voice, I'm actually, I'm not having the best of days mentally, um, mental health-wise. However, this, this happens. So... <clears throat> Adult sexual abuse, I didn't even know it was a thing. I didn't even know it existed. And at times I didn't even know it was happening to me. When you're having a relationship, particularly with a Casanova psychopath, and a Casanova psychopath is a narcissist who uses his charms and sex um, to get usually sex off other people or pictures or videos. So there's a, if you think of Casanova, he was a seductor, he was a seducer. He was a playboy, you know, and, and you can kind of... You can Google Casanova all you want, but at the end of the day, he used women and he used them for status, uh, for sex, for power, for control. And that's where the term Casanova psychopath comes from, because the psychopath bit is the interesting bit, the important bit. And psychopaths have no empathy. They hunt, they hurt, they harm, and they do it again. They hunt, they hurt, they harm, and they do it again. And they do it because it's compulsive for them. They do it because they get something from it. It's a purely self-interested and selfish uh, pattern of behaviour. And Casanova psychopaths, for anyone who's got any interest in, in my writing, um, so Dangerous Normal People, which is my first book, and that is literally called Dangerous Normal People, Understanding Casanova Psychopaths and the Narcissistic Virus. Casanova psychopaths work in three phases, and uh, they work with what's called the love bombing phase, which is the beginning, which is when they, they apparently adore you. You are it. You are the one. You are the best ever. You are the most beautiful, intelligent, incredible woman or man if it's a woman doing it to you. But let's talk about men doing it because that's my experiences so far. However, I do actually have a sociopathic stalker who's a woman, but let's do her another day. Um, so a Gasanova psychopath, a narcissist who's hunting you for status, money, sex, uh, attention, uh, will work in three stages. Love bombing, like I say, is the first stage. This is an intense process of seduction and adoration. It is grooming. It is grooming. They will chase you. They will seduce you. They will charm you. They could, they could do it for years. I've had men on social media who I thought I could trust, who I've known for years, dropping the little bombs in my DMs, getting up in my, uh, my messaging years they will be interested in you. And when they get what they want, you're nothing. You're done. It's over. However, in terms of my Casanova psychopath, which is my second narcissist, in my book, he's called Jonathan, but in real life, he's called James Keegan. And he worked for Glasgow City Council and he targeted women there and hunted women in uh, Gorbel's swimming pool for years, 15 years. He was recruited from prison. Already, alarm bells should have been ringing. <laughs> Okay, anyway, um, so he hunted me there six months. He chased me around that swimming pool. I was married. I was the ultimate target for him. Married, pretty, slim, owned my own home, still own my own home, actually. Well, the bank does, kind of. Uh, owned my own home, my own income, successful. I was on £25,000 a year working for a charity. I was the most delicious food, nourishment, fuel source for this particular Casanova psychopath. And that's what you'll find. If you're interested in Netflix, there's a, a series called Dirty John, 
exactly the same process all over the internet. You can Google love bombing and narcissists, and this is what they do. Once they've found a target, which I was, which you could be, which many, many people have been, which thousands of people are every single day, they, they will chase you. You will become a project for them. They stalk you covertly and they hunt you overtly, but you are, you think it is charming. You think you are so supremely flattered by it. They say everything you want to hear. They do everything you want them to do, but it's very intense. There's a red flag, very intense. And it's quite sexual. There's a lot of touching, a lot of eye contact, a lot of flattery, a lot of verbal grooming. You know, you're beautiful. You've got the best bum in the world, which is something he said to me in, a, I mean, in his workplace. And I didn't click. I didn't click. And the shame and the grief and the remorse that I, with all my knowledge and intelligence, I didn't click what this man was. But there are many, many women he did this to and he's still doing it now. And I have to forgive myself and know all over the world, this is what they do. So your red flags are this incredible attention, this level of attention you've never felt before. Eye contact, touching, sexual messages, sexual videos, wanting them back, wanting it back, even though you've never done it before, even though you don't want to do it. You're being groomed into being a sexual object. Okay. This already is abuse because they know what they're doing and they're doing it for selfish, manipulative, dark purposes. They're grooming you. Okay, just because you're not underage doesn't mean it's not grooming. They're lying to you and they're hunting you to use you. Then it gets to devaluation. That's the middle stage. So the devaluation stage is when they start to use you. They're, they've now got the opportunity. You're in love or you think you are or you're in lust. You certainly are because you're fallen in love and you've fallen in lust with a person who does not exist. Narcissists are the master of manipulation, lies and masks. They've worn a mask for all that time to get you to do what they want you to do. And it can be sending a picture. It can be sending a video. And we all know, ladies and gentlemen, what that is. It could be simply to have sex with you. It could be to get you to cheat on your partner. It could be to get you to do something you've never done sexually before. It could be to get you to satisfy them sexually. And then the abuse begins. And the abuse is doing all of that stuff to you while cheating on you, while lying to you, while lying to their existing partner who you don't know exists, which is what happened to me. And uh, you, because you, fall, you think you've fallen in love, you will do extreme sexual things. You will do it when you don't want to do it. You will do it to keep your narcissist happy. You will do it to calm your narcissist down, to avoid a discard. Now, all of this is in my book, Dangerous Normal People, Understanding Casanova Psychopaths and the Narcissistic Virus. So don't feel like you've got to kind of keep re rewinding and listening. I am an expert in adult sexual abuse. The, the harm that this causes over a period of time, and for me, it was two and a half years. I was used like a, a piece of meat. And I was used and I gave and I gave and I gave and I did and I did and I did, and I did purely purely to avoid being discarded, which to people who don't understand what narcissistic personality disorder abuse is, it's basically being dumped, okay, old school. Uh, but you're not dumped. You're just placed aside for an, a few hours or days or even weeks or months. Not for me, but mine was days. I think the longest was four days. So that the narcissist thing can, can go and hunt and groom and abuse another woman or person 
Um, and that could just be sexting, it could be cheating, it could be actually, it could be visiting prostitutes, which my ex did. This is all sexual abuse. And what this does to a person who was already mentally fragile, which I was, I already suffered from anxiety. Um, I relapsed in an eating disorder. I developed, I, my hair fell out. I, st I lost my sense of taste. I, uh, like I say, I relapsed in an eating disorder. I started drinking. The decline was fairly, well, two and a half years. It's kind of, yeah, fairly swift because you are being abused. And this is just the sexual abuse I'm describing. I was, he was violent to me. He cheated on me, which is betrayal trauma. He controlled me. He coercively controlled me. He was jealous. He was verbally abusive. And this is what narcissists do in intimate relationships. And there's a lot of sexual abuse. There was porn. I begged him to stop. He still did it. There was sexting strangers. I begged him to stop. He still did it. This, within the sexual context of what you think is supposed to be a loving partner. This is someone you trust or you, you're trying desperately to trust. This is someone you are feeding at night. This is someone you are keeping yourself nice for? Is this someone you are chasing desperately and begging and hoping will stop hurting you and other women? This is sexual abuse. And it sends people, whatever gender, but I think particularly women, because intimacy for us is sex, sends us totally crazy. I became so sexually disordered. I lost my sense of self. I lost my sense of morality. I lost my understanding of what was right, what was wrong. I lost my self-respect. It sends us so crazy that when we eventually crawl away from the relationship, if we're lucky enough to do so, we can become abusers. We can become uh, uh, untrusting, angry seducers. We can become extremely promiscuous and what we end up doing is we end up going on to have sexual relationships or sexual contact with people who we do not even have any form of attraction to who we don't even know who we don't even like because our sexual abuser the person we loved and trusted with every single part of our body has taught us that we are nothing that other people are nothing and that the only way to feel not even alive, but to, to feel anything is through sexual contact with another person. And more often than not, that person will be the wrong person. So sexual abuse in narcissistic relationships and, and, and with these types of hunters of women who have done it again and again and again and again for decades can tend to turn other people into dark people. And that's what happened to me. Luckily, I recovered and I've gone on to have a relatively healthy life and I'm still very unwell, but I'm raising three wonderful sons and I'm writing books and I'm helping other people understand and avoid what happened to me. Hello, good afternoon. Lucy Hawkey here, author name L.W. Hawksby. I thought I might do two podcasts back to back with a little reading from my books. I've been told that the introductions, the sort of uh, the initial draw in of my books in particular, and that's also the third one my editor's reading at the moment, and I've got uh, another fourth and a fifth sitting waiting to be edited. So I've got five books sitting. And I have to say, I am pretty good at the hook at the beginning of the book that makes you go, 
this is going to be good. So I thought I'd do read the, the first part of both books in separate podcasts and hopefully whet your appetite and get you interested in, in, in ordering them. Uh, I, would, I would hasten to add that uh, I apologise for the price of my books. I don't make that much money. When you uh, uh, write books, particularly in the beginning when it's your first two, maybe three books, you don't make a profit at all. And it's actually quite, it's quite difficult to... to I actually had to move the dog then. She decided to try and eat my feet. Um, yeah, it's quite difficult to make a profit because it's actually really, it takes up a lot of time and energy and it can be quite expensive having your books formatted and edited and things. So you don't turn a profit. I've been told the rule of thumb is you don't turn a profit till your third book. So I'm looking forward to the Forgivers Club being out next February. <laughs> um, but what's most important is really to be able to deliver a story, but nobody's going to read your book unless either you are really interesting, the book is really interesting, or both. And I think because I'm an ex-offender of a sexual offence, a alleged, I still say alleged because it was not stalking and harassment offence, and I also got admonished for a, a very unpleasant phone call I made to somebody who stole my phone. So um, I got those three three convictions and they're now spent and I'm now an ex-offender. I, I did my dues, I admitted the, the offences, I didn't go to jail. And, uh, sorry, I didn't go, even go on trial actually. I didn't put anybody through a trial, not, not my children, not the people that I hurt. So I'm an interesting kind of person, and uh, albeit not particularly popular, it's interesting for a, a middle-class, educated mother of three, labour voting, um, previous long career in helping people could get herself in such a position where she ended up with these convictions and splashed all over the papers. And what makes it even more interesting is that in my time of rehabilitation, I have sat down and decided to write books that help people avoid being victims of crime and help people understand how crimes come to happen. So there's a there's a lot there that I'm hoping would, would make you interested in buying my books. And it's not about you supporting my uh, crimes of the past nor my decisions. It's not about you supporting me as a person. It's about you taking your, um, taking the impetus instead of just trolling or commenting or being judgmental and saying, what a terrible thing she did, or she's this, or she's that. Why don't you start solving crime? You know, I don't mean join the police. You have to be a narcissist to do that. And I don't, and I, you know, the best way to understand crime and to solve it is to read about it. It's to open your mind and understand how somebody becomes a dangerous, normal person. And that's why I called my first book, Dangerous Normal People. Because I was a dangerous normal person, I was sucked in by a dangerous apparently normal person and the other people he recruited and continues to use to hurt his victims are dangerous apparently normal people. They work in the police, they work in social services, they work in teaching, they work in Glasgow City Council, they work in gyms and leisure centres, they work in all different industries and dangerous normal people commit crimes, they hurt others. And until we learn about why people like me go on to commit one-off offences or why far more dangerous person, people than me go on to commit offence after offence after offence after offence, all of the same nature, all in the same way, all with the same patterns, we need to look at all different types of criminal behaviour, the context, the where it came from. So I write books on that. So here's the beginning of Dangerous Normal People, which is my memoir of three years in the run-up to when I committed my first 
criminal offence. April 1st, 2016. I'm chatting casually to two dishy police officers standing side by side at the entrance to the riot van I'm in. The same police officers who 20 minutes ago read me my rights in my ex-partner's bedroom, then removed me from his flat. The creature who has us all here, unwanted guests at a really shit party, is otherwise engaged, storming back and forth, kicking things and ranting like a rabid bear in the living room of his flat across the road. A third police officer is keeping me in his flat, keeping him in his flat and away from me. Stretching a little, I can see up to the flat through the windows I recently cleaned to watch my ex strut back and forth. His teeth will be gritted and he'll have one eye pupil larger than the other. If I squint, I can just make out him rubbing his stubble chin in false fear. He's doing it deliberately. He's taunting me. He knows I'm only outside. I know him like he knows me. Oil knowing fire. The officers who arrived were unmistakably surprised that the significant hole in my ex's front door was caused by the size 5 Converse trainers now on my knee in a clear plastic evidence bag. My slim feet not quite touching the floor of the van are cold. I shiver not from the temperature but with the realisation that not only is this the end of us but the beginning of a long road to recovering who I used to be. Tired suddenly I look up away to the flat and lock eyes with the officers stood in front of me. They look at me with a mixture of interest and concern. Both are quiet too now and I realise they're standing together in the doorway of the van to keep me inside. Drawn faced and oddly calm, I unnerve them. I can feel it. They expected a wild eyed junkie with booze breath. They got a sober, petite blonde with a Highlands accent. The domestic incident was phoned in by his alcoholic mother nearly an hour ago now. Of course he phoned her. This clever little tactic allowed him to create a witness. She can now claim she heard me screaming and shouting and in particular begging to be with him. Her wonderful ex-convict, cheating, drug-addicted son, has become, as has become the norm. He's drunk, unkempt and grassy. A researcher fresh from, fresh from a fucking BBC Springwatch rap party. The flat is dark, untidy and smelling of a bizarre mix of fags and e-cig oil. Overnight, terribly distressed at the respectful ending of our perfect relationship, he's been on yet another binge he'll blame on me. The poor soul is exhausted, broken-hearted, and desperate for peace from the crazed harpy sitting here now. The living room door was open when they arrested me. Firm hands over my wrists, I was walked out into the hall and could hear him bellowing as clear as fresh ice. She's just a slut from AA. I've been trying to help her. I don't even know her. I looked up at the officer beside me and I pulled the I told you so face. Two minutes ago, the same rather gorgeous officer had held open my backpack. Wide-eyed and jaw-twitching, he watched me gather hairpins from a bookshelf, walk back from the bathroom with toiletries, struggle to pull the second of two red high heels from under the bed and zip the bag up. Attached to the zip is a keyring with a picture of myself and the man I used to love. Faces close to the camera in flattering black and white. We look happy, content and young. As the officer and I stepped out into the stairwell, he nudged me and raised an eyebrow at the repeated slurred shouts of, I don't even know her. In trying to bark a short laugh at him, it catches and I half gag. Yeah, that's me. I'm a no one. I'm just a psycho, just like all the others. The officer doesn't reply but the way he relaxes his grasp on my wrists and his more gentle walking me down the stairs tells me all I need to know. He believes me 
And I thank God for that. So that's just the beginning of a first page and a half introduction of what happened to me and how I came to become an offender, seen as an offender. How domestic abuse, domestic violence, sexual abuse, financial abuse, coercive control, jealousy, spite, his malignant codependent ex, who was a social worker, probably still is, stalking and harassing me, stalking and harassing him, eventually having sex with him. That's just the beginning of dangerous normal people understanding Casanova psychopaths and the narcissistic virus. Go on and find it on Amazon, Waterstones and any other bookstore all over the world. It reached bestseller in compulsive behaviour because these types of criminals who hurt and harm again and again are compulsive.